Hi, this is Delegate Eric Ludke, Majority Leader of the Maryland House of Delegates, and you're listening to the Conduit Street Podcast, the official podcast of the Maryland Association of Counties and one of the best sources for dad jokes in the entire state of Maryland. Welcome to the Conduit Street Podcast. Kevin Canale here with Michael Sanderson on Wednesday, December 1st. Michael, how are you? Doing fine, Kevin. Weather's getting a little bit chilly. Things are starting to feel like wintertime. Ready for a conference, ready for a special session. Lots going on. Lots going on. And perhaps biggest news, Michael, is that oh, you, you know we have a penchant for Guam on this podcast. We love Guam. We talk about Guam a lot. It goes way back to, to the origins of this podcast. What if I told you that the governor of Guam is in Annapolis today. Today, <laughs> the governor of Guam is in Annapolis. And I don't know why she's not on the podcast right now, but can can you believe that's true? I mean, it, it's blowing my mind. I'm, I'm super excited about it. It's it's very exciting news. And, and there are uh, no doubt um, the people who have been following around, I guess it's the National Governors Association is having an infrastructure summit here in Annapolis and, and Governor Hogan's playing host, playing host to that. But I think the, you know, the, the scores of people wandering around outside these buildings are all podcast listeners. And we, this is our opportunity to connect with, with our hero, the, 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 the new first woman governor of Guam. It's very exciting. Yeah, Governor Leon Guerrero is in town and I've been beating the pavement trying to get a meeting, Michael. But as you said, she's she's kind of busy discussing important stuff like infrastructure at this NGA summit. So maybe you can pull some strings and we will be able to get her before she boards her flight back to Guam. But uh, they are holding that big summit. It's kind of a big deal for Annapolis and for Governor Hogan, as you said. Big news, but I, I'd love to get her on the podcast. I'd love to just get us a picture with, with the governor, but we'll, we'll see what happens. I don't want to get arrested outside of the Graduate Hotel trying to get a picture. So I'm sure there's lots of uh, Black Suburbans over there and all that stuff going on. But it's great to have the governor of Guam in town, along with a bunch of other governors, Michael. And of course, we've talked a lot about infrastructure on this podcast. So it's good to, I guess, for governors to sort of meet up and talk about best practices and how they plan to invest this money moving forward. Right. And and that they share our priorities. Right. We've been talking about this as a local government issue, but obviously states and our U.S. territories are very, very invested in, in taking next steps in infrastructure. You know, Congress has come through. We've got a package and, and now it's a matter of getting stuff done, get some shovels in the ground. So so she's on board. Governor Hogan's on board. Conduit Street's on board. We're all excited about it. Today on the podcast, we're going to talk about Mako's election initiative. That's the fourth and final initiative that we're going to cover here on the podcast as we've previewed the previous three, which we'll link to in the show notes. We'll also preview the upcoming special session and Michael Woolly Bear Caterpillars. This sounds like a Michael Sanderson special, but I have a feeling it may steal the show at the end. I like this stuff. Yeah, let's do that. All right. All right. So we'll get to that. But let's open up with the election initiative, Michael. And this is something that we've talked about on the podcast before. And it's because we had a bill last year, which will be along the same lines of what we're trying to do here. Right. And this to us, to to county governments, is long overdue because the state has an odd and antiquated mix of laws and practices that govern elections. And those laws need a much needed reboot. So what we're trying to do, Michael, is we're trying to clarify and update election laws. Right. And we want there to be an emphasis on fairness, transparency and accountability. Right. And, and as a practical matter in Maryland, it's county governments who really conduct the elections. 
So each county has an election board and a professional staff who are the, the managers, administrators of the elections. So, so it's a function that counties generally do. Um, but what makes this tricky is that the standards and guidance all comes from the state board of elections. So there's a state sort of central decision-making role. And over time, that has gotten complicated rather than this being entirely local decisions. Sometimes the marching orders come from the state, come down, and then it's that's the kind of stuff where this gets a little fuzzy. Right. So I think the easiest way to break this down, there are two major issues here for county governments. But like you said, the locals really run the elections. And the first is transparency and accountability for the state board, which, you know, oftentimes makes these unilateral decisions without local input. And those decisions oblige county funds, right? So that's the first one. And then the second issue is funding fairness. So let's talk a little bit about the first issue, transparency and accountability. We believe, that, and counties believe, that they need to be at the table when the state is making major contract and procurement decisions as part of a true partnership with the state, Michael. And again, counties, the ones actually running elections, we have a lot of experts on the ground who have a lot of good input, and we think they should have a little bit more of a role and be at the table for these big decisions that affect them on the ground. Right. And I don't, I don't, it doesn't sound unreasonable to me. This is this is something that we hear both from election administrators, but also from like budget and finance officers in, in the county government who say, you know, where did this come from? How did this decision get made? How did, how do we get into this four year contract? Where did this, you know, where, where did this come from? <laughs> so, right. so the idea of more sunshine uh, on the process that gets gets us there and, and potentially some more seats at the table, um, practically speaking, I think is a good idea. Yeah, and just to even be in the loop about what the state board is doing, I think would be extremely helpful because as you mentioned, it's not just our election professionals, but also our budget and finance folks that they find out only when they get a bill that they need to pay uh, for some new equipment or some new contract that the state has decided to do. And, and we've seen multi-million dollar election projects come before the Board of Public Works, Michael. We've talked about the Board of Public Works. And oftentimes we see the funding component uh, use a vague and obscure term called special funds with no explanation of what that means. And Michael, I'm sure you can tell everybody what special funds means. And I think it's a good example of why we need to clean this up. Well, in, in this context, what effectively is meant when the word special funds appear as this is where the money's coming from, it means the state intends to send invoices to 24 counties and say, you pay your share. We've calculated it. Here's how, here's what you owe us. So, you know, send us $1.4 million to pay for your share of this new system or this new you know product that we've gone out and procured and, and have decided that Maryland has to use. So special funds is code for the county's pay. Right. And so that is obscure. And that's not what I think of when I see special funds. And I know that's not what a lot of people would think of when they're just you know perusing through an agenda and you see special funds, you think, oh, we must have some money tucked away to do this. But really what it means is we're going to to build a county. So the counties, if they're going to have to pay for it, they should know. And the state, if they're going to pay for it, they should know. This is good for the state and the counties in terms of just being able to prepare for budgeting and stuff of that nature. So I think it's pretty straightforward. We just want clarity on who is supposed to pay for what, the state or the counties, and we don't have the laws that give us that clarity right now. And, and especially, Michael, when you're talking about this, this language that's from 2001 that governs the way we fund elections, a lot has changed since 2001, right? We have new technology, and maybe that sure. new technology doesn't necessarily fit within the de definition of a voting system or, or whatnot. So we, we need to get, we need to update the laws. And we often talk about 
government catching up with technology. And I think you could also make a case that this is another example of that as well. Yeah, and, and I think it's important to emphasize this is not the counties saying we don't want to pay for right. elections. We're not saying we don't want to run this stuff. We're not saying we don't want to use the right tools. What we're saying is the selection process and the way these things are budgeted and approved, we should be stakeholders in that process. We should be aware of what's coming down the pike. And when legislators or the Board of Public Works approve it, it should be clear to them that this, this means the local governments are going to have to pay up for, in some cases, all of it or in some cases, half of it. And that should be clear to everybody. I don't think there's any argument against that kind of transparency. That's number one. So the second piece that leads right into funding fairness. And we've talked about, you know, 50 percent, 100 percent, whether counties are on the hook for all of it or half of it. And we mentioned earlier, you know, we rely on this uncodified language from 2001 that governs the, the, the responsibility for states and counties when it comes to, to paying for this stuff. That language is vague. And oftentimes the state, again, is making these decisions and they shift burdens onto local boards of elections whose operations are supported by the counties. And we've seen this a lot over the years, Michael. And I think a great example is, is one of recent, and that is these, the poll book project. Poll books are used to check voters in at the polls. We need to upgrade them. And this is where we get vague in terms of whether or not this should be 100% counties pay for it or whether the state should pick up half the cost. Counties say the state should pick up half the cost. The state board of elections says no. And over the course of a year, um, the county obligation has gone up a lot, Michael, in terms of who's going to pay for this and how much it's going to cost. They shifted a lot of costs onto counties. They didn't really provide an explanation for why. And at the end of the day, counties uh, were, were supposed to be paying 90% of this project with zero input, oversight, or participation. And we raised this issue with the Board of Public Works, Michael. And, and I think the Board of Public Works having to weigh in here is a perfect example of why we need clarity. But what happened at BPW, I think we talked about this briefly before, but... Yeah, and it's just, it's a weak spot in government structure if you have insufficient guidance coming from the lawmakers. And that's what we've got here. So generally speaking, you look to the General Assembly to write laws to tell the various administrative agencies, this is how you go about doing this. And Unfortunately, in this particular case, you've mentioned this before, but there's like a little paragraph tacked on to the end of a bill from literally 20 years ago that, that basically said, because the state's stepping in and mandating a certain kind of voting system, the state is going to pay 50% of those costs. This is not going to be completely borne by the counties. And we now have all these like weaving in and out of word for word of what that paragraph says and to what extent it guides every new bit of technology that shows up. And you, you've used the word voting system, and that's because those are the words that appear at the back of this 20-year-old bill. But that's not really the right way to run the railroad, right? I mean, that's, that's, that's kind of our argument here is let's just be clearer about this. And th the essence of what I feel it's fair to say, I think the essence of what they wanted to do in 2001 was the state stepped in and said, we're going to make this uniform. Everybody's going to get rid of your current voting system and go with this new system. Now, that was its own sort of side right. debacle, right. but right. everybody's going to use this new touchscreen system and that's what we're going to do. And because the state's making the call, we all split the split the cost 50-50. And that that was put into law for that that project, but then it became the sort of general vague guidance that we've all been working with for 20 years. 
Right. And so, you know, the, the BPW had to step in and say the state should pay 50% for the poll books. And I think, you know, you're right. It, this is 20 years old. It's not up with the times. And we just need to get something on the books. We need to clarify. And really, I think that the way to, to summarize, I think what counties are looking for here is if the state says you have to buy it and the state tells you from whom to buy it and the state decides the contract and does the procurement, then the state should have stake in the game, right? If if county governments don't have any say in contracts and procurements and vendors, then it's hard to say they should pay 100% of anything in our opinion. So I think that's the essence of this when it comes to the funding fairness piece is if the state says you have to do it, if the state tells you from whom to buy it, and if the state writes the contract and does the procurement, they should have skin in the game, right? Is that the general idea here when it comes to yeah, the funding I, piece I, of this initiative? Yeah, I think that's I think that's a good summary that if this is a top-down decision, that the vendor is selected by the state and it's going to be uniform across the state and everybody's got to get the equipment and goes through this one contract that was orchestrated by the state, the state's the player here. They should show up with half the money. And that's, I mean, this is not really a brand new idea. It's just a refinement of what's kind of been in the law for 20 years, just trying to make it more clear and more intuitive. Like to me, in my mind, rather than saying these 11 things are on the list and other things are off the list, you just say, if the state led the charge, then they get half the charge, right? Yeah, and that makes sense because, you know, you don't want to have to keep coming back and updating the laws as technology changes. So I think that's the the quick and easy way to fix this. And I think everybody will have clarity. Everybody will be on the same page. Yeah, I, th I think this is a this is a matter of sometimes the letter of the law and the spirit of the law are not exactly the same. And it, it's, I think it's very reasonable to say that the spirit of this law has been that for these, these centralized and uniform things as part of running the election, that the state has an obligation to pay its fair share. But when the law doesn't say that clearly, you end up at best ambiguous and mm -hmm. potentially saying, oh, we have no authority to do this. So that's fine. We want to pass this bill, um, try and keep this out of any complicated, like stuff we're talking about is not politically charged. This mm -hmm. is, you know, this is nothing, this is nothing about, you know, like this isn't sexy stuff, right? This is, right, but right. this is just like there should be a clearer, a, a clearer assignment of who does what and who pays for what that we all can agree to. What's the process and who pays for it? So I think I think that that's that's the nature of what we're trying to do. It's not thrilling, but it's important to get done right. Right, I think you're right. It's not controversial. It shouldn't be. It's a clean bill, a clean initiative. And usually, Michael, going into an election year, the the, the legislature is reluctant to pass election bills, but that's mostly when it comes to sort of administration on the ground stuff, right? That would, new ideas that would potentially cause problems at the, lo at the local level when you're trying to get ready for an election. But this has nothing to do with that. This is more fiscal and, and transparency issues. So I, I don't think that'll be an issue here, but it is worth noting, typically you don't see a lot of election bills going into an election year. And that's, that's good because people on the ground level trying to prepare don't need any curveballs as they get ready for the next election. Well said. All right, so let's shift gears there from the MAKO election initiative. Let's talk about special session, Michael. Again, as we sit here on Wednesday, December 1st, by this time next week, town will be buzzing. The General Assembly is coming into town. And we know that they're going to do a few things, Michael, right? We know, number one, they have to do congressional redistricting. That's the main purpose for them gathering early before January for the 22 session. They're also going to elect a treasurer for the state, and they're going to have to deal with veto overrides, right? And so those are the, the main components here, Michael. But what are you hearing about anything else that might be going on? What, what's your What's your 
outlook here for special session? Are they going to be here for a month? Are they going to be here for a day, a week? Uh, let, let's sort of try to figure out what we know and, and what we can let our listeners know as we approach special session next week. And so, so over the last like 30 years or so that, that I've been on the scene in Annapolis, uh, we've had a variety of special sessions, sometimes anchored around one specific purpose, uh, sometimes more broad. Most of the time, they're really laser focused, like come to town because we have this emergency bill that needs to get passed. And so you're in town for a day or two to pass a particular bill or a suite of bills or that sort of thing. That's the usual circumstance for a special session, couple days kind of thing. Um, it, it was back in 2007 was the exception to the rule when the fiscal circumstances of the state uh, felt dire enough at that time that there was a big fiscal restructuring. And that ended up being basically a month-long special session called by the General Assembly, not called by the governor. There's two different processes there. Right. But General Assembly called called in a special session, and they were in town for three or four weeks dealing with a, a sort of a whole you know, platoon of different bills dealing with fiscal issues and, and ended up sort of addressing and resolving what was a big structural deficit at the time. So um, that was a much more involved several week in like October and November of 2007. That was a peculiar time, but I don't think what we've got, what we've got on deck for this fall or this winter is going to feel like that. Um, you, know, you just mentioned the agenda is pretty tight. Congressional redistricting, that's a bill. And uh, the, the election of a new Maryland treasurer, that's an election by the General Assembly, that's basically just one vote. And the override of vetoes from the governor from the last general session, they need to take those up if they're, if they're gaveling in. But those, are, those, those aren't like you don't have a hearing from scratch and have to go through a committee process. That's just an, an up or down vote, no amendments, just an up or down vote on the floor of the Senate and the House. So I think that's pretty, that's pretty much it. We're, we're, we're hearing that even though legislators nominally can introduce bills, it, it sounds as though the two chambers don't have any intention to get into broader legislating. So I, I think if that's the agenda, then they'll have some public comment and so forth on the redistricting process. But the election of the treasurer is sort of an in-house matter, and the veto overrides, they've already debated these bills. They already know basically where the votes are or they were back in March or April. So as a practical matter, I don't, I don't, think, um, I don't think there's a lot here that's going to take up loads and loads of time. Um, we, we know the, the recommended map from the Legislative Redistricting Committee that's being forwarded for the full General Assembly's consideration and public will have a chance to talk about that. But I think we're talking days, like like three, four, five days, something like that. I think it, might, it may take the balance of one week, but I don't think this is going to go through the weekend and into late December and jeopardize holiday plans and things like that. I don't think it's going to be that sort of show. Yeah, I agree. And I think a good indicator here is I don't think that any standing committees plan on meeting in the House or the Senate side. So I think that gives you sort of an indication of how this is going to go. And, and you mentioned, yeah, legislators can introduce bills, but if standing committees aren't meeting, I think that gives you a pretty good idea of the General Assembly's posture this special session in terms of considering any anything outside 
of that that confined list of items. We do know, Michael, that the governor has made some news. He's going to introduce some of his crime bills uh, in special session. Again, unlikely that those are going to get a hearing, but those will be introduced in the 22 session as well. But of course, those bills are, are going to be on the table. The General Assembly is going to have to decide whether or not to read them across the desk, right, uh, or to have a hearing, which we don't think is going to happen. But so at least we do know the governor plans on trying to, to get some bills through this special session. But other legislators as well can introduce bills if, if they'd like, but we don't think they'll get a hearing. I think it's going to take some time to override vetoes. You have to give people time to stand up and speak for or against the veto override. So that could take up some floor time. And of course, the the map, We'll generate some conversation and there'll be a lot of discussion around the congressional redistricting piece. But I agree with you. Anything over a week seems way too long for me in terms of their agenda as we know it now. Anything can happen, of course, but I think it's going to be a pretty streamlined special session. I don't think they want to spend any more time than they need to here in Annapolis. And there won't be any functions in the buildings, right? There won't be any receptions or parties as part of this special session. We're in the middle of a pandemic still. So I know that's top of mind for them as well is probably get in and get out as soon as you can, because we're going to be back here in January anyway. Right. So this is roll up your sleeves, get your work done and go back to your districts, right? That's, that's basically the story. Okay, so we will be down in Cambridge at the Make a Winner Conference next week while the, the Annapolis is buzzing and the General Assembly is here in town. But, you know, again, I don't think there's going to be much on the menu in terms of stuff that we're going to have to, to testify virtually on or whatnot. So that should be okay. We're excited to get to Cambridge. It's really important. We'll talk about that in a second. But, Michael, I, I want to talk about something I know near and dear to your heart. And this is a, a Michael Sanderson special. And I didn't know anything about this until you sent me a tweet. And then I, I ended up reading Going Down Rabbit Holes. And we're talking about woolly bear caterpillars here, Michael. And apparently, if you want to know the forecast for the upcoming winter, you should just look for a woolly bear caterpillar. They are black at both ends, and they have a reddish brown or rust color in the middle. Talk about woolly bear caterpillars and what they have to do with meteorology. We want like we want like 20, 25 minutes on yeah. this, you think? I think or? this is like the main, this is the main, this is the bulk and the meat of the podcast. So we're looking <laughs> to you here as the resident but expert on caterpillars to, to explain what the heck is going on here. Well, I don't know. I mean, I'm, I'm well acquainted with this little bit of lore. I mean, it's, of course definitely, you are. It, <laughs> I mean, I, I grew up, I grew up with, uh, you know, with, with a sense that you, we would watch these caterpillars and they were somehow a reliable indicator of how serious the weather was going to be for the upcoming winter. So it's, it's like October, November and into early December is when you start seeing these black and brown caterpillars, um, they eventually become moths, not butterflies. Mm -hmm. But um, the woolly bear, like, it's just a peculiar thing. Their, their color mix is different sort of year by year. And it's been a story that I don't know, probably my grandparents taught me was that you look at the woolly bear and then you're going to know how bad the winter is going to be. And that the amount of, it's sort of like if you hold a caterpillar head to tail, it's going to give you sort of like a, a reading of how severe the winter is going to be. And the black parts on the woolly bear correlate to really heavy snow. So um, as, as nearly as I can tell, that's the big story. And this is, you know, this is like reminiscent of Groundhog Day, right? That, that, that somehow there's a Punxsutawney Phil is a magically endowed rodent who can predict the beginning of spring. I mean, this is the same kind of stuff, I suppose. But I, I, I don't know. I think very earnestly, my grandparents, I think, taught me that this is a thing you're supposed to do. And I just, you know, 
took it as gospel. That's what that's what you do when your when your grandfather tells you this. You just you just listen to it. So anyway, our friend Jeff Salkin from Maryland Public Television posted a picture. They they found one in their office, and he was saying, "Now, aren't we supposed to learn something from this from the the, the pattern of the colors on here?" And I don't know. I I'm surprised Twitter has not blown up over this because this seems like an opportunity to have a debate, like the like the 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 blue and black or white and gold dress, like that sort of thing. We, we should be fighting about caterpillars right now. I mean, there, there, to be fair, there are festivals dedicated to these things. But but let me. So my my question, and you did you hit on Groundhog Day. What which is more absurd? This idea of these caterpillars predicting weather, or Puxatani Phil deciding whether or not it's going to be uh, a rough winter or not? So so you know how much how much of this is, is just these folklores? I I don't know which is more absurd because let me. With all due respect to your grandparents, you know, the, 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 the bottom line here is, Michael, it's a fun story. The truth is that this caterpillar cannot predict what old man winter has in store for us. Oh. In winter. Oh. Let, let me let man. me tell you that uh, I know I don't want to. Burst no, your you, didn't, you didn't put a spoiler warning or anything. You, no. you're, just, you're just letting it out. Like you're just going ahead and saying it. Man, just rip the bandaid know. off. Rip the bandaid <laughs> off because the caterpillar's coloring is based on how long the caterpillar has been feeding its age and species. So it's a fun story. And Jeff Salkin, I, 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 you know, I hope that they're looking for caterpillars and I'm going to start looking for caterpillars all around town. As I go chase down the governor of Guam to try and get her on the podcast, I will be on the lookout. But I, you know, again, this is just, this is crazy. And I, I now, because you send me these tweets, I, I spend hours and hours trying to debunk the caterpillar thing, but it is fascinating. I, I like the folklore. I like the story, but unfortunately, Michael, no, I will be the spoiler and tell you that the caterpillars cannot predict the winter, just like Puxatani Phil cannot do his thing. Neither one of them are true. And we're going to we're going to just stick with the facts here on this podcast. That's probably the best way to go. I'm just I'm afraid we're going to lose listeners over this, that, you know, that we're if we're going to be the bearers of rotten news like this, then people are going to start looking elsewhere for their oddball analysis. I'm a little worried about I'm fairly confident we're the only podcast, at least in Maryland, in the Mid-Atlantic, that is doing explainers on woolly bear caterpillars and debunking the, these fun stories. So I'll be the bad guy here. That's fine. That's that's I'm used to it. Moving on, Michael, we mentioned the Winter Conference in Cambridge. This is a big deal. Obviously, we have two major conferences every single year, summer and winter. This one is more intimate. It is in Cambridge, and it's going to bring together, Michael, decision makers, county elected officials, county professional staff from across the state. And I can't tell you how important this is, especially as we come out of a pandemic. Hopefully, we're still there. But the exchange of ideas and best practices, and we have all of this federal money funneling down, seems like a really important time to get folks together to focus on the important issues that we're going to face moving forward forward. And Michael, I think especially with the theme for this year's conference, it's right on the nose, right? It, it's right exactly where it should be in terms of what we're dealing with and what we're going to deal with moving forward. Talk a little bit about the theme and what you're looking forward to as we get ready to gather in Cambridge next week. Well, I mean, it's like we've been interested on the podcast talking about technology and how it interfaces with policy. And it's one of my favorite sort of motifs that we go through talking in, in this forum. Um, the idea of tomorrow's technology today and how to use it and leverage public service and, and, and improving connections with your residents is, is really the, the central theme of this conference. So, you know, time to reboot, that's what we're doing as, as, as part of the, the title for the event. So I, I, I like that. Um, 
but a lot of best practices and forward-thinking ideas all through this program. Um, a lot of really interesting sessions being brought by private vendors who, who I think will have some eye-opening presentations, as well as the more, you know, the more standard content where we have speakers from county governments and those who deal with us and, and that sort of stuff. So a big mix of things. Um, I know you were helpful in getting this mobile 911 dispatch site. Um, mm. Can you can you mention that for a second? Because I think I'm really excited about that. Yeah, I think that's really cool. So part of NextGen 911, which we have been heavily involved in making sure that the state can accelerate its rollout to save lives. And again, NextGen 911, uh, it provides the ability to text and photos, videos. It also enables first responders to find people quickly and you can handle much larger volume. So basically, it's the 21st century for emergency communications. And one piece of that is remote call taking. So in this pandemic, we saw, you know, a lot of people needed to shut down and they needed to be able to work remotely. That includes, you know, 911 folks, our 911 dispatchers, our 911 telecommunicators, they they oftentimes may need to work remotely. And it, it may not just be because of a pandemic, there could be a fire or a weather event that forces a center to shut down. So there is technology now that enables these telecommunicators to take calls remotely. And in Cambridge, we're going to have multiple counties come down and show off that technology where they'll actually be on site in Cambridge, but taking calls live from their respective jurisdictions, which could be all the way out in Western Maryland, could be on the Eastern shore, could be in the middle of the state. But the bottom line is people are gonna have a chance to see that in action and live and how that works. It's really cool technology. We'll have experts in the room sort of explaining what's going on. And I think really what our 911 community wants to do is highlight this technology, but also to say thank you to, to all the county electeds who have supported these efforts and have really gotten the ball moving in the right direction here. Maryland is well on its way to achieving next-gen 911 across the state. We've always said all boats should rise. So we have all the components in place now to make that happen. And I think our 911 community wants to show off that technology and really thank uh, the county electeds who have been behind them 100% because again, this technology is going to save lives and Maryland is now a leader in next-gen 911 and how we're moving forward. So I'm super excited about that. You can't miss it. It's going to be great. And we're going to have that again, live on site. There'll be plenty of people to answer questions and experts, but yeah, I I'm excited for it, Michael. And I can't take credit. Again, this is this is our 911 community coming together and saying, hey, we think this is really cool. And this is the kind of thing that we should be highlighting at the conference for everybody to see. Yeah, I think it's 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 a it's a great opportunity to connect with the broader audience, right? Not every county commissioner goes down and walks through the nine one one call center and sees what the people, you know, literally on the front lines there are, are managing. So I'm I'm looking forward to that very much. And and you know, one of the things you mentioned earlier, uh, this this business with cost drivers in your county budget. Well, when we were talking about, you know, you mm -hmm. sign up for an election, you know, the, the state selects an election system, and then suddenly you have a six-year obligation to pay A, B, and C, and so forth. Uh, one of the sessions at the conference talking about how budgets look and feel different than they did 20 years ago, where you have software as a service, and you have um, subscription models and and uh, maintenance contracts for equipment and technology and so forth that this is a it's a little bit different enterprise than just you know how many widgets do we need to buy this year to mm -hmm. to keep the lawns mowed and that kind of stuff so I, I think I think uh, that's another session I think is is going to be in keeping with this forward-thinking theme for the conference so good stuff for our electeds and other decision makers in counties and everybody who works with them 
I agree with you. And of course, a lot of interesting topics like cybersecurity, agritourism, we're going to talk rental assistance, infrastructure, health behind bars, all of the things that are top of mind for counties. And I'm also excited, Michael, we're going to have Malia Cromer, friend of the podcast and Twitter superstar uh, from the Goucher poll to show up and talk about what Marylanders are thinking. They just ran a poll recently. She'll break down the results of that poll. And I think it's really important for electeds to understand the public mindset. So Dr. Cromer will present her material. She's going to explain polling and, and really what Marylanders think about a lot of the big issues that will be taken up in the 2022 session. So I'm really excited about that. I know we've been looking to get Dr. Cromer plugged in. And, and, and again, I think that's going to be great. That'll be part of the closing session at conference. So you won't want to miss that either. I promise. So, Michael, I'm really looking forward to being down there. And again, really, really excited. December 8th through the 10th in Cambridge. Don't miss it. For sure. All right. We'll leave it there for today. As always, if you enjoy the podcast, please go ahead and subscribe. We'll make sure all these episodes get sent to the device of your choice. You can also follow along on Facebook, Twitter, and then, of course, the Conduit Street blog. But for now, hopefully we'll see you in Cambridge. Michael and Kevin signing off, and we'll talk to you soon.